0: I'm really curious about your work with education and um, I we've been talking a lot in our kind of um, weekly discussion groups about applications of contemplative practice um, or engaged Buddhism as a kind of a general um, but very diverse category so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about um, how you apply
1: Buddhism within a kind of an educational framework? Yeah, it's a really big, big topic. I'll I'll try and um, be very very succinct as I can. Um, So um, I'm working with three schools. um, The two schools that Ravi mentioned and then one in, in Chiang Mai. And the um, the philosophy, the Buddhist um, philosophy of education, as it were, is based on applying the threefold training of sila, samadhi, and Banya, which I don't know if you're familiar with that. That's sort of telescoping the eightfold path into a training of, of sila and then Samadhi Panya. I found that the difficulty with using that terminology in the educational sphere is that many parents um, are wary of that approach because it sounds too much like like a seminary or that uh, their children might end up wanting to become monks and nuns, which is not what most parents um, want for their kids. And that's not the, the idea of the, the school or this system either. So I I I looked through the, the Buddhist discourses looking for um, another way of expressing these same principles. And I came across a teaching what called the four Pawana. That's B H A V A N A, or kinds of four kinds of development, um, which is is basically just recasting the same principle, but it's um, expressed as an education or a development of the relationship of the human being to the material world, and then secondly the relationship of the human being to the social world, and then the third is the education of the heart and of the emotions and the fourth, the education of the wisdom faculty. And I found that that provided a more modern way of talking uh, which wouldn't lead it to be a very kind of narrow or elitist um, kind of approach, which would put off um, many people who are, um, let's say they're they're Buddhist, but they're not sort of um, really devoted meditators or practitioners. And so, wanting to um, make clear that there's no real, real rift between um, an approach to education which is based upon Buddhist principles and, and the more conventional um, education, but that it's one which fills in the gaps that conventional education has um, allowed to, to, to manifest, and particularly in the um in the attention given to the to the heart and the emotional development of children. Um, and using that fourfold um framework, then the 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 subjects which are um compulsory uh, through Thai law can be integrated within that. And so the sciences would go into most of the sciences into the relationship between human being and the, um, and, and the material world. So a divide from that, um, basis then, um, further developed that. So in in the first of those four categories, the development of the relationship between the human being and the material world, the first would be, uh, the relationship of human being and their physical body. So that would include things like nutrition or sex education and, and biology and, and sports. And, and then expanding to relationship to those elements of the material world with which we are most um, familiar, which we have to do with in every day and with technology and, and um, possessions and money and, and so on. And and then the outer outer ring, outer sphere would be the environment. So those would be like the three main headings of that first category. And then the second category is using wise use of precepts and conventions and agreements in order to create the optimum conditions for growth in Dhamma. Um, Emphasis on development of communication skills and then emphasis on uh, creating a, a, an interest and skills in in contributing to the wider society. And then in the, so those are the two outer, um, uh, the two, we like we, we have these kind of phrases like two outer, two inner. So those are the two outer categories. And the two inner would be um, particularly teaching children how to um, to protect their minds against the, unwholesome dhammas of anxiety and depression, stress, and so on, um, and how to develop wholesome qualities of mindfulness and kindness and compassion and um, self-motivation and patience and so on. Um, And then the fourth category, the wisdom category is uh, starting off with basic um, critical and, and creative thinking skills and going on to some more specific Buddhist um, contemplations. So that's the the overall structure, but it's not just what's being taught, but it's the whole idea of the school um, as being a school of of learners. So one of the, there is, um, there are texts in which the Buddha refers to the Arahant or the fully enlightened human being as um, a graduate. So the idea is that an enlightened person is the person who's graduated from the Buddha's education and that everyone else except for uh, Arahants are all in need of education. So we're all learners. So there's this idea of the children are one learning community. The parents are a learning community and the teachers are a learning community and that um, we should should all uh, seek to learn from each other. And, um, yeah, I could go on about this for a long time. Just one more point is the the, the, the key concept is, is of good friendship. And so that the teacher in the Theravada is not like a guru or a God figure. He's like the best friend that you could possibly imagine. That's the goal. That's the idea of a teacher. Um, and trying to create, like, um, a community based upon principles of good friendship. Um, and that's in, 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 you know, very much part of the way the school is run. So, the Buddhist influence not not solely in terms of um, subject matter, but um, also in the way that we live together and learn together. Thank well, you very much. Right.
0: Let me just see if I can. Yeah, and to just uh, add. I had the opportunity to visit the school when I was in Thailand this past summer, and it's, uh, yeah, it's quite a nice, or the Panyang School, and it's quite a nice place. So uh, I guess if any of you are interested in this kind of uh, education or just education in general, uh, perhaps consider volunteering or getting involved with the school.
1: Yeah, anybody's once uh, coming to Thailand, you're very welcome to come and visit or even to come and stay and uh, participate in the life of the school for a time.
2: I have a
0: question on like, on like balancing focus and like, internal versus external, because I know, like, some people have, like, the conception that, like, Buddhism is kind of, like, an isolated practice where one focuses on, like, the self rather than, like, focusing, like, outside on, like, societal issues. Um, and then on the flip side, like, people who focus too much on, like, societal issues might, like, burn out and, like, tear themselves out. So I'm wondering, like, where you think the approach would be to, like, strike the perfect balance between the two?
1: Yeah, well, I think most people who have any, um, done any reading or any contact with, with Buddhism will be familiar with the word Dhamma or Dhamma. But um, at the time of the Buddha, the, the phrase that was used most commonly was Dhamma Vinaya. Um, and the Vinaya has kind of been lost. Um, but the Vinaya means all the ways in the, which we uh, seek to... Um, construct the most um, uh, conducive environment for for everyone to grow in the Dhamma. So the Vinaya is taken to its most um, sophisticated level in the um, in the rules and the that govern the life of the bhikkhus, because this was a society within a society that the Buddha created himself and could structure himself, but the but it's uh, it 's also an idea that that um, applies to lay society and the idea of how we can um, create laws and regulations and conventions and customs and agreements um, in families in societies in which we can support the, the growth in tamma. so so I think that it 's been a that um, as being like exclusively or overly focused on the individual is much more a comment on the transmission of how Buddhism has been transmitted to the West and the aspects of Buddhism that have been taken up by, uh, by people in the West rather than um, the original um, vision of, of the Buddha, um, or as you can still find it, um, Practiced and experienced in some parts of Southeast Asia to this day. Or um, speaking about the Theravada school. Well, I think that um, you know, I I've, uh, last few years I've been uh, going to 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 China quite a lot and speaking with uh, Mahayana Buddhists and, and monastics in, in China um, about this. You know, how how far to um, go out to to uh, relieve suffering in the world, and and um, often the Mahayana uh, Buddhist friends will say, you know, there is this kind of image of the Theravada Buddhists as kind of selfish and only involved in their own welfare. So this it is a idea or a perception that's within Buddhist communities also. So I, I would say all all that I can say is that. Um, as we understand it, the Buddha said that self development and development of the community have to go hand in hand and that they are they, they mutually uh, reinforce each other and that if you want to um, to to contribute to to your community, you have to know how to look after your own mind. Because I you know, I'm sure you, you've met people who get really passionate about doing something about injustice in society or or some uh, environmental issues or whatever and throw themselves into it and then completely burn out within a year or two. Um, and so they're unable to sustain that kind of um, commitment over a long period. Whereas if someone is also uh, looking after their heart, training their heart and um, being mindful and patient, and uh, then um, they have the resources to be able to deal with all the challenges of helping others um, in a way that will prevent them from getting burnt out. Also, I think that a big problem with uh, groups of well-meaning individuals in NGOs or in any charitable foundation Tend to be attachment to views and opinions, and everyone gets very um, particularly passionate. You know, when there's the idea, "I'm right," and this isn't just for me; this is for everybody. This is for the country or for the planet. You know, and everything becomes up to turned up to eleven. And and having that uh, meditative uh, uh, perspective on views and opinions, and how attachment works, and how poisonous it is. Um, I think that also can help uh can mean a, a much more constructive engagement with with others and again to to be helping in long term rather than just a short term burst of enthusiasm
0: Thank you that was very
2: insightful and um, I guess I have a follow up to that if if that's okay um yeah we we read your your text on love in preparation for for the this session and yeah you talked a bit about how kind of uh, passion for, for a cause or a uh, country or something like that can like give us meaning and and uh, like what you described just now but it can also kind of burn us out and rob us of wisdom and I guess we've we've been talking in our discussions about uh, a lot of current events mm-hmm. um Specifically, what's what's happening in the United States, and and what's happened as a result of coronavirus, uh, kind of these various injustices, and I guess I was wondering, when when these uh, emotional reactions are are so strong, and we feel so uh, strongly about the issue, how do we uh, try? How can we better see the other side, or kind of avoid having these one-sided? Perceptions of, of, uh, of especially when we're like really passionate and inflamed by something that we see is wrong in the world.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is. Um, I, I think again, our ability to do that is is enhanced by meditation practices in which we're learning to take a step back from views, opinions, thoughts, emotions, and being aware of just this flow. Um, without uh, without an owner and so that kind of less identification with our own views and ideas and beliefs and fears um, enables us to open ourselves up to other opinions and views um, and also to see them as being selfless as not you know not to um, make sort of demonic figures out of um, demonic behaviors you know not to just to, to to solidify that thing and, and 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 create this world of bad people or and because it's that can be very depressing apart from anything else but i think that um you know it, it's very common that we we tend to uh make straw men and look for the the weakest and the most um you know despicable kinds of um, expressions of, of views and beliefs that uh, we disagree with, and that it's it's good to try and say, well, you know, who is the most intelligent and, and the most articulate um, person who expresses the kind of views that that I disagree with, um, and really listen to them and say, you know, or or some something that you find just how could anybody possibly think that, or, or, you know, then think, well, but, but then that, that is a real, it's a really good challenge to think, um, how, how would it be possible to consider that as a rational and reasonable, um, view or, or action? Because in many cases, those people do feel that what they're doing, um, is rational and reasonable. And how, how do you get to that point? And what are the, 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 the premises the beliefs um, that you uh, that you take on board and which will make that kind of view seem reasonable because it's usually within a within the context of a larger belief system and and I think that when when you can deconstruct these things and see them in terms of thoughts and ideas which are based upon beliefs which are based upon and you, And then it it just takes a lot of the the kind of the poison out of it when you see people, um, as you say, behaving in these terrible ways, and to see the the fear and the anger and the um, and the um, just the fact that someone can take on um, a a false idea or um, like a poisonous belief. Maybe when they're young, and then it just becomes part of them, and then it becomes very impossible, almost impossible for them to stand outside of that and even to consider the possibility that it could be wrong and i think as 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 meditators as uh, practitioners you know then if if we if we tend towards that side that in you know, a sense of arrogance and you know we're always saying well maybe. Uh, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. If you're someone who's very uh, insecure and and, uh, and lacking any self-confidence, then maybe you need the mantra. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm right. But but just just finding that kind of uh, balance between, um, uh, yeah, that 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 sense of being right and just seeing that, yeah. That's, that's probably the a major cause of conflicts, you know, this sense of, of being right. And in fact, some years ago, I, I, I don't know if you have. I, I, I'm afraid I can't remember the name of the book, but uh, some, some scientists had... Uh, cognitive scientists, I guess, had isolated a particular area of the brain um, which is associated with absolutely unshakable confidence or belief in something and um as i remember um there was a, there there is or was a man in australia who's absolutely 100% convinced he's dead um and uh he he uh, he um participates in study sessions at the university and, and and you just can't you just can't argue him out of this belief that he's dead in any logical way because he can always get around it yeah i mean that's just true you know Uh, everybody, uh, most people, or almost everybody who's dead, they're not breathing anymore, you know, but this is is just why it's just so weird, you know, like I'm dead, but like I can breathe and I can talk to you, and I I just know, I mean, I I, I know. So that, uh, that I I found absolutely fascinating that um, someone who had a a car accident and then somehow affected this particular area of the brain suddenly had this Um, incredibly unshakable confidence in in the weirdest thing and and um, how yeah just I I think in any way of looking and reflecting on things that just um, releases or or reduces that sense of you know this is a person who is a bad person or is it and and there are various ways of of looking and reflecting and um, to to do that and and uh, I, I think that's the only way that dialogue ever takes place when we can uh, identify and, and perhaps even uh, allow others to recognise commonalities. It may be a cliche, but I think in the end that that's that's the way that it that it works. You know, identifying and and um, and and um, really putting effort into to emphasising commonalities between us.
2: Thank you thank you very much Ajahn Jayasaro um, I'm wondering if you could share a bit with us about um, your path as a teenager what what were your questions when you went out seeking and did you have much exposure to Buddhism before what other spiritual paths did you explore and um, what was that like for you
1: yeah I I, um, I had asthma from the age of like I think from 18 months until I was 14. So I was always kind of sickly and at home a lot. So I, um, I read a lot. So I became a real bookworm, um, and probably, uh, much more bookish than if I'd gone to school. And so I'd, I was like to, um, be alone. I like to read a lot. And so I had a, quite a questioning mind. Um, and I, uh, I, I, I just couldn't relate to Christianity. It, it made no sense to me at all. I, I just couldn't get on with it. And, um, and so I, and I, I assumed that religion meant believing in things. And I, I didn't think that you needed to believe in things, to um, like dog, religious dogmas, in order to, to, to live life. Um, but then when I was, I think, about 13, 14, I, I got this question, like, um, what's a good way to live? Or what's the best way to live uh, your life as a human being? And, and that seemed, seemed to me to open up all other, uh, a whole number of other questions, like, is that even a reasonable question? Um, You know, we can talk, you know, let's say, let's say compare two different cars and we can say, oh, this is a superior car because it goes faster, because it's safer, because it's more comfortable, because it's more attractive. So we have all these different criteria to to distinguish between material objects. But uh, can we do that with a life and say, this is a better life than that life? And if so, what are the criteria for doing that? So So, this was what the other area was why is the world such a mess? Why is there so much suffering in the world? Why is there so much injustice? Does it have to be like this? And if it doesn't have to be like this, what is your responsibility in a human being to make it better than what it is right now so the, these were the two questions i 'm probably expressing them with more more articulately than I did at that age but. But those were the the two things that were really um, uh, in my mind a lot at school, and and I'd also always had this absolute fascination with India from when I was small. Anything to do with India, and and then I saw like this photograph of a, like a, a yogi, you know, sitting on in the in the ocean. so cool, and and then. Um, uh, then I read um, Siddhartha and Hermann Hesse books. And, and then there was a movie. I don't know if you ever saw that movie of Siddhartha. Have you ever seen that? It's a German movie. But the first scene is uh, it's like this lush, luxuriant uh, Indian scene. And then uh, you hear this sound of om, om. And there's the young there's the young Siddhartha sitting Samadhi and and yeah, this, I got to do this. So as I all, the other thing was I was living in a, in a small um, kind of provincial town and, um, and I, I was constantly looking for, for a peer group. I always, you know, I was always a bit, you know, not, not quite fitting in with everybody else. And, and, uh, and it seemed to me the only group that I had any kind of sense of connection with was the hippies, and so everything all came together with like the the love for adventure and to test myself and to learn about life, and and to we were just the hippie trail to, to India. So um, so after I after I finished high school, I, I worked in a um, building site and in a warehouse and made some money, and then set off. Overland to India um, so so, and I had many adventures and and I was altogether in India for a year and um, visited different ashrams and was in Gaya for a while and um, and when uh, Unfortunately, when I went to MacLeod Ganj where the Tibetan um, community is I, I, I had hepatitis, and I you know I was just com- just wasn't up to it, really. Um, and also, I, I I have this. I don't. Have you ever heard of aphantasia? Do you know what that is? It's only got. A, it's only had a name for a few years now. But it it, it means where your brain is completely incapable of creating images and colours. So I have zero imagery in my in my brain, and um, it, it's just people just starting to talk about this now, you know, this is kind of like a new thing. You can look it up on Wikipedia, Aphantasia. So this was a huge obstacle to Tibetan Buddhism and, and visualization. I just, I can't do this, you know, so I was very attracted to the, 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 the straightforwardness and the, the simplicity of Theravada Buddhism. So eventually, almost two years later, I got back to England And I uh, got a bit lost. And and, uh, one thing, another, I went on a meditation retreat and the teacher had been a monk in Thailand. And uh, in his Dhamma talks, he he would talk about the time that he um, was a monk. and, And I thought, well, that's exactly what I've been looking for for the past two years or more. And thought, yeah, obviously, this is exactly what, What I need to be doing, so that led me to to come to Thailand. I think just uh, I left out an important thing earlier. Um, The the first book I came across on Buddhism was *The Way of Zen* by Alan Watts, and um, and many of the monks that I know and people of my generation, you know, have a great deal of gratitude to Alan Watts because. his, his books were really instrumental in inspiring many people to to begin spiritual path and uh, and I remember just reading first couple of pages of that book sitting on a park bench in Cambridge and and just absolutely yeah just no question this is this is it you know and it wasn't like uh, this is a kind of exotic Asian philosophy it was just like absolute common sense, you know, there's just no, uh, no, no, no doubt about it. Uh, yeah, that's kind of just a potted version.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Yeah, okay.
0: I was wondering if you, if you could comment more on the, on the student-teacher relationship, either in Buddhism in general or in the Theravada tradition in particular?
1: Yeah, and it's think sort of a, it's a follow-up point from, from um, the previous question in, in that uh, apart from uh, my realization I wouldn't be able to, to uh, really develop any of the meditations based on visualization, a more substantial doubt I had about Tibetan Buddhism was the relationship between the teacher and student and how the, the teacher is. Um, considered to be the guru or the, or sort of a living Buddha, um, and that kind of absolute devotion to an unconditional devotion to a teacher. I I found that, um, um, yeah, not rather uninspiring and dangerous. Um, It seemed to me to open up the possibility for all kinds of corruption. And I wonder whether I would be, willing to, to give myself to that kind of uh, a structure, and so what particularly attracted me to Buddhist monastic, Theravada monastic order, is that um, the, the Vinaya discipline uh, applies to all monks, including uh, fully enlightened Arahants. There are no exceptions, so there's, no, there's not this idea that you reach a certain level, um, and you don't have to do all this stuff anymore. You don't have to keep all these rules anymore because your mind is free, and whatever you do is is uh, is per se enlightened behavior, and it shouldn't be held up to the normal the norms of everyday behavior. You know, you're something else and above that now. Um, what I liked is that that in in, in this tradition, um, then the teachers keep all the rules, even if they don't personally need to do that, but in order to be a good example to younger monks. You now, if, if you're a young monk and, you know, you start, a lot of the rules are really kind of irritating and you think, I don't really need to do this. You know, what what difference does this make ultimately? And it's sort of the way, the way your mind works. And then, you know, if you've got the teacher, oh, you say, oh, and then when you get to that level, you don't have to do it anymore. So maybe I'm at that level already and maybe I'm just, you know, that you can teach yourself a lot. But then when you see a teacher who keeps these, these rules uh, with great, very, you know, with uh, real scrupulosity, and really carefully. And then you think, well, if he keeps it, then, you know, what possible excuse can I have for not doing that? Um, and the, um, so that's a protection for, for young monks. And, and one of the um, the rules for a, a new monk is that if he sees his teacher misbehaving, he has a, a, a duty um, to, with great respect, to um, admonish or to express his, um, his uh, disease at what, he, what he's seeing. So there are, there are kind of checks and balances built into the monastic, the hierarchical monastic um, system by the Buddha to prevent uh, those in power from taking advantage of, of those under their guidance. And I, I was very impressed with this and um, I felt that it created a system which while not absolutely kind of bulletproof, there'll always be some corruption, but as far as possible um, was set up in a way to minimize or to prevent that whenever was possible. And so, over the years, I would say over the past forty years, there have been so many um, of scandals in in Buddhist and spiritual communities um, because of this uh, uh, lack of clarity about the the relationship between students and 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 teachers and so for for a monk, for instance with uh we're not allowed to to be alone in a room with a woman, or to speak more than you know absolute minimum number of words without another man present. So that these are um, the, there are all kinds of rules which are, are meant to prevent even the possibility of gossip or uh, malicious, malevolent kind of um, slanders. That, um, have to be very very careful to um, maintain the integrity of that of that connection between particularly you know in a sort of heterosexual sense between male monastics and female teachers but when I mean a spiritual teacher is is someone who has that that kind of power and charisma um, and it, it can be um, um, very um, intoxicating for new students, particularly, and that's why spiritual teachers need a very uh, clear-cut um, moral standard to prevent that um, relationship from being distorted or corrupted. And the same would work for, a, a, you know, with a, a female teacher and, and a male student, I'm sure. Thank you. So, sorry. So, uh, maybe just to to add to re- return to something that uh, mentioned before is the idea of in Theravada of the teacher is of what we call the Kalyana Mita, or is the good friend. So, it's like the best possible friend, as someone who um, keeps you from doing stupid things and gives you guidance, and you know when you're about to lose it, and then cheers you up and encourages you when you're discouraged and and uh, shares and knowledge and understanding with you. And is basically your spiritual welfare is his or her number one concern. That, that would be the idea of the teaching. Hi, uh, thank
0: you. <laughs> um, would you be able to expand a little bit on what type of a friend um, Ajahn Chah was?
1: Yeah, for me he, uh, he fulfilled all of the um, all of the the criteria for um, the spiritual friend. So there are various levels and, and so in in everyday life, you know, the Buddhist idea is that we will strive to be um, good friend or mita to those around us, but in different ways. So to try to be a good friend to our parents, to be a good friend to our spouses and girlfriends and boyfriends and uh, our, our colleagues and, and so on. But in that, that sort of special or most elevated um, form of um, the, the good friend or the Kalyana mitta, uh, the Buddha spoke of, of seven uh, characteristics um, and I feel that, that Ajahn Chah, thought, at least for me, fulfilled all of those. So the first is that the the Kalyana Mitta just um, it, um, gives rise to feelings of great love and affection in the student. And um, with with Ajahn Chah, you know, we used to go around to his, his cottage and sit and uh, he'd tell stories, or he'd teach us or tell us off, and you'd be there to like eleven twelve when and you have to get up at three o'clock in the morning you know so and you st- and unless he'd st- drive you away you know you you wouldn't go you wouldn't go back to your your hut, you just just wanted to be there and be with him and massage him or fan him or just sit and listen and be in his presence so so there is that you know that's the most kind of guru like quality you know it's just that. He inspires that sense of love and affection um, secondly is that he inspires respect um, and that's that 's the balance to the that could have the affection you know, there's that sense of um, respect and, and um, uh, reticence around him and and uh, as tries to inspire i mean i 'm somebody who quite um, you know, I traveled around the world. I left home when I was 17 and I had all kinds of adventures and never really, uh, I guess it's kind of the recklessness of youth, but I could say never afraid of anybody or anything that I can recall. And I met Ajahn Chah and I felt afraid of him. So this is kind of weird kind of thing. You have this kind of love and affection and then fear. It's not like he's Trying to consciously inspire fear, but it's a fear like you say, like if you were to come across like a a lion in the middle of the forest, you know, there's just, you know there's just a sense of awe and uh, respect. And and through his through his life and his practice and his integrity of his practice and the the way he lived his life as a monk, you just feel this great, great sense of, of respect. And then. The third element is that, that you feel that you become better through being with him and you feel that your defilements become uh, exposed and, and uh, become weaker and then you, you feel inspired to emulate him and you can feel that uh, virtues within you are growing through being close to him or, or receiving his teachings. Um, Fourth is that um, the Kalyana Mitta has uh, great patience and endurance with his students, so you know students can get very they can be stubborn and opinionated or they can be very uh, clingy and, and they want to attach or they want to sort of um, compete for your attention and so on and, and so um, teachers have to be very very patient with their students' foibles and and shortcomings and, and defilements. I felt Ajahn Chah really had that quality to a great extent. Then he's someone who can um, express um, the Dhamma um, in a way that is um, appropriate to each individual, each group of person. is not kind of a fixed uh, way of talking, but one which takes into account the the, uh, the background, the, the spiritual uh, maturity, um, the needs of, of each person that he speaks to or teaches, um, and is someone who can um, express the most profound principles of Dhamma uh, in a very um, uh, clear and easily understandable way but one in which that clarity and ease is not the result of like dumbing it down or oversimplifying it, but a genuine um, uh, translation of something which is very uh, subtle into um, similes and metaphors and language that uh, an audience can easily grasp. Um, and the seventh quality of the Kalyana Mitra is he never leads his Students astray. He never has any kind of personal agenda. I want to be um, uh, powerful and famous, and and to um, take advantage of his students um, in any in any way or form. So those those are the the seven qualities of the Kalyana Mitra on the level of the spiritual teacher, which are uh, laid down by the Buddha in the discourses. He inspires. Love, respect, um, emulation—he—he—he he, he, uh, he, he lifts people up. Uh, he's patient. Um, He—he's a skilled communicator. He knows how to express the Dhamma, profound Dhamma, in ways that are easily understandable. He never takes advantage of his students. So that—that's. Uh, that's pretty sums up, well sums up Ajahn Chah for me and those those qualities. Thank
2: you. Mm-hmm.
0: I see that we're running close to the end of our time together, but maybe we have time for one more question. Sure. So, okay.
2: Oh. So you've talked a lot about the, uh, qualities of a, of a great teacher. Um, I'd like to hear some more about, uh, the qualities you think are important for great students, Yeah. Good also the importance of the importance of finding like a great teacher.
1: First of all, there, there aren't that many great teachers around, um, and even if there are, even if you have the great good fortune and accumulated merit to find a great teacher, um, it's not always the best thing for you. Um, sometimes great teachers tend to be famous and they have a lot of people around them. Um, and there can be a lot of pettiness and competition and, uh, yeah, so it's not like you find the great teacher and now you—that's it. You know, you're you're on the way. Um, it can or cannot be the case, and um, making that the crime because I you know I've been in in Thailand for forty years now, and I've just seen so many people on this quest for a perfect teacher, um, and then they end up you know completely discouraged or. Or wherever they go, there's you know, this f- fault-finding mind, and they're always disappointed in in some area or some aspect. If not the teacher, then of the uh, of the, the place, the monastery, or of the the people around the teacher. And, and so, I as as an attitude, you know, that I need a great teacher. Um, I, I'm not really in support of that. I mean, if you do, um, then then great but not necessarily great either. Um, What I think is important is is a teacher where, as I I mentioned just now, as you feel that there's progress being made, that the greed and hatred and confusion and doubt and jealousies and all these kind of negative mental states are over a period of time waning. You know, it's not like a day-on-day thing or even a week-on-week thing, but you can see like a trend over and and uh, in any, over a period of time, and that the wholesome dhammas of mindfulness and clear comprehension and effort and patience and um, and and so on, the loving kindness and compassion are, are on the increase. And you could say that, yeah, if it wasn't for this teacher, then I can't see that happening. So it's someone who's further ahead on the path and that you have that kind of connection with him that you find that your practice develops. Um, I think that's a more, in this day and age, that's a more practical level. The other thing is we, you know, we do have this incredible advantage of technology where now you can uh, listen and and watch great teachers from, and have a whether it's inspiration or whether it's information, you know we have students have that access that that would have been a dream you know for for monks and meditators for the last two thousand years you know to to be able to listen and watch uh, the great masters that, that, you know, in the way that we can today it's unbelievable um, in terms of student then patience and Consistency, I think, is um, is probably key. Um, you know, often, it's a trap: is to just to really go on a retreat or something, and really put in sort of a heroic effort for ten days or even more, and then let it sort of all fritter away, and then go back and do another retreat, and let that and that fritters away, and and then in the end, you sort of lose your confidence in in the practice, and the um uh just maintaining a steady practice um day on day in day out that's in the long term that that's really important and um maintaining that, that interest in learning from whatever happens in your life you know it's all um it's all it's all there to be um to be learnt from. So that 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 stance and that that attitude of the uh, of the student in every area of life, you know, learning uh, how to be a human being, learning how to be a man, or um, learning how, how to be a, a son or how to be a boyfriend or a husband or a father. You know, there's so many things and just looking at those things as like lifetime tasks um, that that we're learning. Um, but most important is commitment to, to learning the nature of the body and mind and really understanding how the mind works, how the body works, how they affect each other, um, and that training and um, education of our thoughts and feelings and emotions. that That's like the heart of, heart of the practice. And the more you look, then the more you see and... And the classroom, if you like, is the present moment. Um, so it's not like you're in the present moment and that's it. Now you're, you know, you're a spiritual adept. But the uh, the present moment is is the environment. It's the classroom in which you can do the work. So unless you can learn how to be in that classroom of the present moment, then um, there's nothing really profound taking place. So a lot of meditation practices are just learning that skill and that ability just to be in the present moment for for a a considerable length of time because that's when you really start to penetrate into the nature of things and to to, to, um, extract all the sort of wrong ideas and assumptions and attachments that we've accumulated over many, many lifetimes. So I say... um, Don't expect, as a student, I would say, don't expect to be inspired all the time or think that there's something wrong when you're not inspired because inspiration is also, it's a a conditioned phenomena. You know, we can't be, even monks can be inspired all the time. Um, But if you are um, struggling, don't always look outside for inspiration from teachers and teachings, but if you can develop that skill of, of reflection and contemplation in such a way that you can inspire yourself, then you have an incredible resource. You know, that that um, developing that skill of inner motivation, whether it's for in your working life, your academic life, or your working life, or your spiritual life. Uh, you know, th- this is how I feel right now. You know, not not how I should feel, but this is how it is. And, and what can I do about that, you know? so. You, you, you're, you're just humbly accepting, this is the raw materials that I've got right now and what's the best that I can do with them? That would be my advice. There's a, I don't know if you ever read this story or heard the story about Einstein. So I tell this to school children. There's a, so Einstein, I mean, the story anyway, is that he went to some big conference Um, So this is towards the end of his life, you know, where he's got that very distinctive appearance, but um, supposedly someone comes up to him um, at a conference and said, who are you? Um, And rather than saying, I'm Albert Einstein, how could you not recognize me? And I've got two Nobel prizes and so on. He says, oh, I'm a student of physics. Um, And I, I think that captures that, that, attitude really, really beautifully, you know, even like a world renowned scientist and um, achieve all the accolades and fame and fortune and yet he considers himself a student of physics and think um, to to sustain that kind of um, uh, perception of oneself is really helpful.
0: Okay, well, thank you so much on behalf of, I think, all of us and the Buddhist community at Sanford. Um, thank you so much for coming to speak with us and lead a meditation. And also thank you to the host center of Buddhist studies for co-sponsoring this event. Um,
1: yeah. yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yes, um, this is my really my first time, so I've got to learn how to do this. It's uh, an adapt to the the new normal, and um, so uh, I hope I'll get a bit more fluent as I as I do it more more often. Yeah. Yeah. So it's uh, it's midnight here. I think maybe time for me to go and have a rest. So uh, I wish you all the best in, in your practice and um, may you be well, happy and uh, may the, all the negative mental states in your heart wither away and die. And may all the positive mental states grow and flourish and um, maybe we can um, see each other again sometime. <phone rings>